Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to, to our fireside chat. Um, and uh, joining uh, me today is uh, Laurentius Human, who is the head of renewable energy at TBI. And um, it, if, if the, the way in which we're going to go through today is, um, uh, you know, open to, to the chat. Uh, you can look to the left of your screen. Uh, we need you to um, engage with us and pose your questions. Don't leave it until the end um, uh, because we've got a, a jam-packed session with lots to talk about. Um, and also, uh, if you uh, just uh, give us... Um, uh, an, an opportunity to uh, pose your questions. Um, we'll be checking it on the chats and, uh, and, and I'll put them through to Laurentius. Uh, but before we do that, um, uh, after this housekeeping, I just wanted to kind of give everybody a context of where we are uh, in terms of energy policy. Um, and uh, you should see that uh, on your slides uh, coming up now. Um, just where our energy policy is, is evolving quite rapidly, right? Um, but progress really is being made. Where we, just looking historically, we've made a lot of false starts. Um, and uh, I think now it's just the pressure of starting to implement policy um, is making uh, almost the market move ahead of policy makers. Uh, just looking at the renewable energy investment program, uh, we, over the next few years, government to plan to put in 11,800 megawatts of new capacity to be procured. And that energy mix is really, uh, you know, primarily uh, looking at wind, 4,800 megawatts, 2,000s of... Sorry about that, I'm back. Um, where I was, was just trying to give you an overview of where we are with the renewable energy policy. Uh, with the Renewable Energy Investment Program, uh, an independent power producer program, 11,000 megawatts of new capacity is planned to be put on over the next three years. Um, and the energy mix is uh, wind, solar, um, gas, new coal, and battery storage. Um, and where we are in the last 12 months is that 2,000 megawatts of this 11,000 is going to be procured through the risk management round. Um, and the big portion of that was LNG, and we know the controversy around the car powership, um, and we'll get Laurentius' views about that um, in, a, in a minute. Uh, currently, uh, the, there's a window open, bid window five, um, and in that, in that round, that should reach financial close by August. And um, we understand that you know, bid window six will come on at the end of August, and then bid window seven towards the end. Uh, of the year. Uh, what we do, wh what I do want to touch on is just a few points about ESCOM, just to put the context uh, to bed. Carbon tax is going to be a big issue uh, coming on into the PL of, of uh, ESCOM uh, in the coming years. Basically, um, you know, it's a, they, they've had sort of a moratorium period, but this is coming on and it's something that will, should accelerate um, the, the, the move to lower emissions. Um, from ESCOM's point of view. And there's the new issue of carbon borders in the EU and third country impact, uh, especially if you give an example of, you know, our steel exported to China, China's goods processed, manufactured and ends up in the EU. They all account for all that carbon. So from a trade perspective, there's an impact there. Uh, for ESCOM itself in terms of emissions is that the budget is that they reach peak emissions in, by 2025 with Medupi and Kusile coming on. And then they have a decade at 
plateau until they have to then start doing a gradual decline to 2050. It's about 5,000 megatons of CO2 emissions that they have to shave off. Um, In the energy transition, um, we start with what we expect is the divisionalization of ESCOM, which should implement in 2022 and the decommissioning uh, of old coal. So that's the combination of things. The divisionalization is important for the discussion we're having today uh, because it's one of the ways in which you start to have a competitive uh, distribution and transmission uh, system or or a competitive distribution and competitive generation through our transmission system. And for that, uh, there's obviously financial needs. Green financing has been tutored for ESCOM. Um, and concessional finance from DFIs. Uh, but, you know, what we really need to see is what their plan is for the legacy debt if they want to tap in new capacity. We know they have market access. They, I think a day or two ago, um, managed to raise 500 million rand, 500 million US dollars in the euro bond by private placement, a six-year um, at a coupon of 4.314%. And that was at a spread of 356 over US treasuries. Uh, this was a guaranteed note, so it's basically marking to market where the last guaranteed bond is the um, 2028s. Um, and so it's, it's good to show a benchmark, a fresh benchmark for, for the entity. Um, the last slide I really want to show is just you know a picture of what our energy mix is going to look like by 2030. And what we're focusing on today will be quite a bit on the embedded generation and this portion is one that's, uh, you know, there is a budget for it is to get to 2,600 megawatts, but I think that's going to happen a lot faster than 2030. Um, and more importantly is that, um, you know, the format of it is that it was never really set in stone exactly how much it's a residual item. So what we want to explore today is what the true opportunity is, what the ecosystem will look like. And so as I can uh, pass on to Laurentius for, for his opening remarks, and really, Laurentius, the question is, where are we with the Schedule 2 amendment for policy that's going to allow this new capacity for permitted 100 megawatts? Um, can you just take us through that and how you see sure. that planning out? Well, we are 20 days away if uh, if things play out the way that they should. Uh, Schedule 2 should be gazetted uh, by the 10th of August. Um, but, uh, we, uh, so that would, that would see us have a framework of what actually is meant by this 10 or this 100 megawatt, uh, uh, lift, this cap that have been lifted for embedded generation. Uh, however, I do think that since, uh, since the announcement was made, um, and tying into what you've said around the risk mitigation round and, and round five, I think that, uh, South Africa's actually had quite a lot of experience in thinking smaller scale generation. We've had a previous round of small REAP projects, uh, sub uh, sort of five megawatt, 10 megawatt utility grid type type projects. Um, many of the industry, uh, both in manufacturing and in, in mining have the capability to understand energy uh, generation. So I think this whole, uh, let's call it this this junction that we find ourselves in in South Africa is actually very exciting from uh, from the energy ecosystem point of view. And what we need is this, we need some clarity around how the regulatory framework will be implemented. 
We do know today that uh, in those municipalities where you can generate and feed into the uh, sort of net metering system, that it isn't very equitable. And I do think that we see in the slide that you've got up here with this embedded generation, how quickly we'll get to that 2.6 gigawatt, uh, 2,600 megawatt. I would agree with you that we would see that accelerate much faster than what we, uh, than what we may have uh, considered, mainly because the rest of the world is catching up with embedded generation or distributed uh, generation and consumption. So I do think that we're going to see a, an, an overlap of new technology entering into the market, um, organizations getting to grips with their own energy consumption, and then what their energy needs are, and then tying that into generating energy for themselves. And then obviously the, the old adage that uh, the cheapest megawatt is the megawatt that you save, not the megawatt that you generate. I do think that we will see an acceleration around energy efficiency that ties in, because if I make my own power, I, gen I generate my own energy, I consume my own energy, um, I would also be able to see the impact of being more energy efficient, which then ties back to your earlier comments around the CO2 emissions and sort of more of a more of the environmental impact. But uh, no, I'm excited. Um, in the in the South African sector, we have some constraints, uh, as I said, the regulatory frameworks. But maybe another topic we can discuss a little bit later is also around. Uh, the skills. We don't have the skills, the people skills, the expertise yet um, in South Africa to really capitalize on this uh, uh, embedded generation space. Um, and I think that we're going to find that tied into new technology is going to be a, a very exciting business opportunity for new entrants coming in, because it's no longer just the sort of developers, then the IPPs and the, and the, and the utilities the market is opening up uh, for uh, for new for new entrants uh, in that ecosystem, and that's exciting. That that really is that really is positive. Within all the other stuff that is happening in South Africa, I do think that our uh, uh, that our approach towards energy is better, and we need it. Um, the risk mitigation around is is one attempt at plugging the gap. But uh, as you identified with those power barges, uh, it's it's a big, it's still a big gap to be plugged. It's still yeah, a big. I mean, I mean, let's let, let's let's get into that then. Uh, there, there, there is. Uh, I'll tie in a question that's out there, uh, which says, you know, the um, risk mitigation round is it the right position for us to host one of the world's biggest uh, battery energy storage systems. Um, given that you know there's such tight deadlines around this risk mitigation, and I mean, uh, well, you know, the, what are the, the time the risk, pressures? Yeah, the risk mitigation uh, the risk mitigation financial close is set for 31st of July. Right. This has already put out the uh, put out the sort of uh, public consultation around the licensing conditions. I think those meetings are set for the 19th of August or somewhere early in August. Uh, at this stage, they still have the seven participants. Uh, to the question around battery storage, some of the participants in the risk mitigation around do speak to, uh, to, to having a hybrid system, generation and storage. Um, let's park the storage conversation because it's a combination of business model technology and uh, this, the base load generation. Uh, I think what is important is the risk mitigation around 
speaks to dispatchable power, power that can be dispatched when it's needed. Um, it is there. Uh, there's a there's a uh, a term called the duck curve, where you fire, which is a which is a, just another way for the engineers to explain why they don't want. Uh, a lot of renewable production in the middle of the day because at the end of the evening they have to match it with uh, with baseload power from another source. So, so I do think the risk mitigation round was the right approach. Um, I don't I don't see the battery storage technology available today at scale uh, really being able to be deployed within the timeframes that is asked for uh, in the risk mitigation round. But also don't think that the the, the power barges and the duration of those contracts is 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 correct. You know, it would be it would have been it would have been possible to say that you need the power barges for a shorter duration and then replace that with uh, with technology. But you can only store energy that you've generated. So it comes back to do we have the generation capacity to actually generate that energy that can then be stored and used at a different uh, a different time. So renewable and storage makes a good pseudo base load, but the cost per kilowatt is high at this stage, still very high. So I think it's a it's a combination of business model and technology. But yeah, I'm uh, I think the risk mitigation round is uh, it's tight. We'll see what happens in the next ten days or how many days we've got left to to financial close. Um, but. Uh, it's not a. It's not the. It's not the be all and end all. It's not the final solution. That combined with own or embedded generation, I think, is a very good approach to uh, and, alleviating some of the near term problems we face. And you know, if we were, you know, because this uh, opportunity is really there for municipalities, individuals, private companies, right? How should um, a typical corporate, um, you know, st- strategy kind of think about? Um, putting on their own energy, right? Uh, is this thing going to be a free for all? What are the considerations that you know, one needs to think about as the binding constraints to actually get this going? Um, if you can start there. So there's a there's uh, look. If your if your business is if you're a bottling plant or if you're a mine or if you're a manufacturing business, you're not an energy business. It's not. It's not your core business to go generate energy, and, and uh, uh, but energy is a big cost driver to your to your business model. So, two elements: one, the cost of energy, and then energy security will be what corporate corporates would be thinking about at the moment. If energy security is your highest need, if you're running a continuous manufacturing process, if you're a smelter, well, smelters consume a, a, a hell of a lot of energy, but if you're a if you need energy and you need to be guaranteed of that energy, then I think uh, embedded generation um, makes a lot of sense. And the price point at which you do that is maybe not at it's not a cost driver from the perspective that it's a it's critical, it's a necessity to have that energy. Um, on the other side, if you if you are exposed to the increases in energy cost and it's a big driver in your business, then uh, mitigating or managing your energy cost would see you look to make a decision to supplement what you get from the utility uh, at a, maybe at a more manageable or at a more at a more specific rate of 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 cost of energy because 
once you've deployed the solution, you will un- you'll know what that what that cost is. Now, there's a big debate about when do you do this uh, because sort of common thinking is that solar panels are getting cheaper and cheaper and the cost of generating a kilowatt or a megawatt of renewable energy is the, the experience curve is going down and down. Um, and so the argument is often there that, well, if we, if we wait another week, another month, another six months, the, the solution may be a little bit cheaper. I do think we've reached a, a relatively stable point uh, for the sort of sub five megawatt space now of what that cost is. So a corporation, two day, two decisions. One, am I doing this? Am I going the route of own or embedded generation for a cost saving? If so, then I'm gonna, then I'm gonna have a certain type of solution that I'm gonna, that I'm gonna implement. If I'm going there because it's about uh, energy security, then my solution may look a little bit different and my cost per kilowatt may also be a little bit different because I'm actually uh, getting more to being uh, grid affection, being off the grid completely. Although I do not see uh, a lot of complete grid defection happening in the very near term, we still need that uh, connection to the grid. And again, we'll need to see where the regulation comes out as to what is allowed and what is not allowed. But for me now, uh, corporates will have to make a decision around, is it a cost driver or is it a security driver? That will lead them down two directions. Um, and then ultimately, if uh, if they decide to do this, do they own this asset or do they contract it in? Is it a, is it a, a corporate PPA? Do they acquire the power from a, from an independent power producer that sells them the power, or do they do they own and operate the asset themselves, which then speaks to the resources may not be around to own, operate, and manage all of the assets that are out there. Um, and some corporates are better skilled at doing that than others. Um, I suppose that I mean, as as you mentioned that that some industries have different needs compared to others, right? So, you know, what are the, you know, if, if you're saying it's not part of your core business, one of the big issues is, is that, you know, the technology is tied to where you geolocate your production. Um, and if you could just get into that, like how does a property sector company that's looking at, you know, building more PV, uh, is it a question of sure. um, that you can only build it on your property or can you actually wheel it in? So the, the, there's definitely the expectation that wheeling will be possible. So what is meant by wheeling is, is that you generate the power at a different location and you use the utility, uh, the transmission network, to get it to where you want it. So if you take a mine, for example, uh, they will generate, uh, they will have a solar plant in an area where there's a lot of solar radiation and they will ship that energy effectively through the network to where, where all their mines are situated. Um, wheeling does have some constraints, uh, specifically because of the way that the first rounds, rounds one through to four of the, the REAP program was deployed. We found that a lot of that renewable energy was deployed where there's a lot of natural resource, Northern Cape for solar and then in the various bands for the, for the wind. So what you get is, is that the, the actual grid is constrained which then impacts where you can put a, a generating asset and wheel it to where you need it. So I would, uh, 
I would see in the immediate term that it would be much more behind the fence uh, is a term that is being used. Yeah, I'll make my power right there behind my own meter or my own substation where I need the power, which then is a constraint to space because solar panels still need a lot of space. And uh, if you are in certain parts of South Africa, your solar radiation is not that great. Um, but you may not have the space to generate more than, say, 20 or 30% of your consumption, uh, daily consumption, which then, different discussion, but then brings us back to our little duck curve where you have uh, the companies can generate solar power during the day. They consume that power, but if they need the power at night, they still need to be connected to the grid or they have to have some sort of storage in their uh, systems. Um, I do think that wheeling is exciting for uh, for South Africa. It opens another sector of the market, but uh, it will require us to have that uh, independent transmission services company. You know, there's deregulation of ESCOM, which you've mentioned in your in your slides. That I think is uh, is going to be a big uh, a game changer um, if the if the unbundling of ESCOM continues and and, and gets implemented, because it will also make it more clear as to how your business model would look if I want to be an independent power producer. Do I produce and sell to multiple off-takers, wheeling it through the network, or do I have this one-to-one -one relationship? I'm an independent power producer, but I have one single off-taker, which is on whose, whose property or on whose uh, real estate I go and deploy my solution. Um, it opens up some questions around how do you fund these things, because if I have multiple off-takers and I'm an independent power producer, I can sell to multiple off-takers. I can blend my risk a little bit. Whereas if I'm an independent power producer only selling to one off-taker, uh, my, my, my uh, uh, market is a bit constrained if I'm exposed to the risk of that one off-taker. And then added to the funding mix is, is for how long do I have this contract? Uh, the, the current REAP projects, 20-year agreements, some other countries in, uh, in and around South Africa run 25-year agreements. Uh, corporate agreements, corporate off-take agreements will probably not be a 25-year agreement or a 20-year agreement. Um, and there, I, I would imagine that you would see different funding models uh, to be able to fund a 5-year or a 7-year or a 10-year uh, power purchase agreement. A lot more will be around the risk or the financial risk associated to the to the off-taker. Who's buying the power from me? And if I can't wheel it, then I'm kind of like stuck with a guy who's right there to whom I'm selling the power that I'm generating. I do think the wheeling is a key element that we would need for, for to balance the market, uh, to create uh, to create the true value of embedded generation and then uh, the, the ability to wheel it. There's an element of, uh, uh, and you'll see a lot of, a lot of talk now around micro grids or mini grids where a community, uh, uh, industrial park, uh, could get together and create their own, uh, generate and distribute their power themselves. I think that's a little bit still in the future for us. Again, uh, the regulatory framework need to adapt to that, but, Municipalities, there's already been talk of some municipalities who want to be completely independent, you know. They want to be able to generate their own power, distribute their own power, and then 
collect payment for that power that they've generated and, and, and brought to the consumer. There again, the, the communities the, or the, the municipalities that look to do that would have to have the skills because operating a generation plant is different to operating the plant, distributing that power, maintaining that distribution asset, and then obviously on the other side, the, the metering of it, the collection of the, the collection of the actual consumption of that power. Unfortunately, we don't have very intelligent prepaid meters in South Africa. We're still struggling a little bit with, a, with that. The prepaid mechanism is great, but the meters aren't that intelligent. Even the ones that are deployed at the moment find it difficult to, to manage the different tariff structures. So, again, as technology advances, we'll see more and more benefit of having embedded generation, ultimately mini or microgrids, which will allow complete energy independence from the uh, from the current incumbent utility. And uh, I think there's the, a the question that's coming. There's a few questions that are coming through, and um, the, if I can just pose them to you, the first is just when we say near term, in terms of how you know quickly this is going to ramp up. Is there a benchmark perhaps uh, from international experience that you can talk to that says, you know, this is how uh, embedded generation sort of the life cycle goes sure. in the life cycle? So uh, we, have a, we have a confluence of two factors here. On the one side, looking back in history to see how quickly embedded generation got deployed was limited to or, or constrained by the technology that was available at the time. So we've seen in the last four years advancement in the, in the inverter technology uh, that uh, and the, thus the ability to deploy, a, say, a five megawatt or a two megawatt or a small embedded generation project has dropped by half. Um, so yes, you can do this. Uh, you can do this quickly. Uh, the rule of thumb: if you if you're going to if you're going to go. Solar panels, ground mount, um, I mean, there are, there are companies that are talking about rolling out solutions in weeks, not even in months. Uh, again, environmental constraints, uh, the right planning, the right permission, the right regulatory approvals, then technically it can be, it can be weeks. Internationally, or what we've seen in, in emerging markets, other emerging markets, Indonesia is probably going to be the fastest accelerating embedded generation market in the next 10 years. Uh, they've got a very small current deployed uh, uh, renewable de- um, uh, renewable energy deployment and they're looking to accelerate that. In markets like India, China that leads the market, uh, I recently read an article that said more than 50% of the new generation is going to be embedded, is going to be small scale. Uh, so I think there again, we'll see new technology, we'll see advancement, bringing the deployment down from months to two weeks. For us, near term, <clears throat> if we take it that it's 20 days to get Schedule 2 approved or regulated, then, you know, near term is next week or two weeks from now. Uh, but if we take it that there's still a lot of uh, a lot of moving pieces in the regulatory framework to be put into place, I would say near term is more uh, eight months to a year, uh, also because of the planning and the knowledge that has to be to be built. Uh, storage will be longer than that. I don't think uh, near term in the storage market uh, would probably be, in my opinion, sort of three years, two to three years out before we see uh, the type of scaled storage. 
And there's great technology in South Africa is actually ideally positioned to capitalize on that uh, because some of the battery chemistries, we have abundant natural resources to, to service that. And we already have companies in South Africa targeting sort of that uh, um, long duration storage using minerals that, uh, that we have. So it's, it's, it's not a bad position for South Africa to be in. We just need the, we just need clarity about, you know, is it going to make business sense to us? Near term, I would say six to eight months and it'll take you weeks to deploy a solution. But actually you should budget that if you make the decision now, you won't have your own power for the next six to eight months. And, uh, you know, you mentioned about the fact that we have some natural endowments for some of the chemistries that are needed in terms of local content. Um, is it really possible to drive this industry uh, from you know, 100% local content, for instance? Or are we still going to depend on the technology development that are coming out of China and Indonesia? Well, not Indonesia for source, but in terms of the deployment technology that's there. So I would, I would say that um, it is a innovation uh, is largely driven by, uh, by, will be driven, still be outside of South Africa. If I, if I look at innovation in uh, costing down solar panels in uh, different inverter technologies in the storage technologies, whether it's lithium or, or vanadium or, uh, or, or, or other technology. But I do think that we have the natural bounty to capitalize on some of those, some of those opportunities. Vanadium being a classic example, it's a storage technology, uh, vanadium flow batteries. Uh, it, uh, the technology may be advanced in other countries, but the deployment of that makes sense here. Um, uh, the local content component of that is a local mineral, uh, is one thing. I do think local content, however, if we look at what happened with the risk mitigation around and how the rules were changed around or contested around what is local content, if we look at rounds one through to four in the REAP program, um, and then the future rounds, rounds five and on, I do think we, we have a lot to improve in actually uh, uh, bringing skills into the country, doing the skills transfer, and then enabling our local industry to participate where they can, not just in the civils, you know, not just in providing the steel or bending the steel that is required. So it is an opportunity for industrial development in South Africa to take what we've got, both natural resources as well as the demand for energy, and then marry that with, uh, with, uh, with, with internalizing, uh, getting that technology skill transfer getting that capability. But innovation in most of this is still driven by the large manufacturing or the large hubs, China. Uh, Europe still leads on some of the, some of the thinking. Uh, and I don't see that changing anytime soon. But we definitely have got local content that we can deploy, and we should do more about it. We, we're, not, we're not there yet. And what is the most critical part of the skills deficit? Is it because, I mean, we've had bids windows one to four. I'm sure skills capacity might have been built up there. But, you know, where do you see the the greatest deficit? So I think that, the uh, well, there's there's very few electrical engineers, uh, not just in South Africa, globally, and and mainly because in the 
well, in the 60s, 70s, 80s, heavy current electrical engineering was what you study it. Electronic engineering or light current engineering was more for the, for the guys that were too scared to, to play with the heavy stuff, you know, like the big systems. So, so we, 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 we globally, we still lack electrical engineers. That's more in the transmission system, the higher voltage stuff. Um, where I see a gap is really in the design and implementation of systems that is fit for the consumption that, uh, ooh, did we lose? Um, there we so go. My, my technology seems to be letting me down on my side, but um, I'm I'm not sure if the audience got the question about the technology where where our skills deficit is. And just whilst you um, are sort of repeating your answer on that, sorry, yeah, okay. um, if you could just also just touch on um, uh, you know just uh, go into the story of whether or not um, it's possible to actually be completely off grid. Uh, in South Africa, complete energy independence uh, is the grid the the major stumbling block to that. No, uh, so uh, skill set. We we are, my view and my experience is that uh, heavy current, the more sort of uh, in electrical engineers, there's there's a gap. It's a global shortage, not just in South Africa. Um, I think there's a, there's a skills gap in the design and development of the actual solution to fit a specific demand profile. But that is that 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 we can get uh, that we can we can contract that in, uh, and then in South Africa the maintenance, the operations and maintenance of these assets is a skill set that we could really benefit from. There's enough. There's gigawatts deployed in South Africa. The O and M, that O and M and optimization is a skill set we nearly we, we we have to invest in, and we are investing. Uh, the, we are investing in that. Can you really be grid independent or off grid or grid affection? For sure you can. Uh, the technology is there today to, to allow you to do that. Um, but it will require a different mindset. You would have to be able to generate your base load power to what your demand is. And you would have to be able to maintain that. And you would have to be able to do that in a way that you have backups to your backup. Uh, so, at this stage, the grid is a great resource to have. So you could always drag more power in if you need to, or if there's something that goes wrong on your own systems, you've got a you've got a fallback. Um, it creates all the problems with uh, with capacity charges and costs, and and it's not as simple as just saying, well, you know, the grid will always be our battery or our backup. But um, now you can go, you can go, but it's expensive. Um, Expensive in both the people skills um, and not to hop on that, but also expensive in because you would have to have all three components. You'd have to have the generation component, base load type generation. You'd have to have the distribution of that power to where you need it. And then you have to, or the transmission of it and then the distribution of it. So, um, most of Africa, you'll find that the large mines and industrial users are completely off grid because there is no reliable grid in any case. So yes, the technology is there, Jones. You can you can plug in your your heavy fuel diesel generator. It won't be clean. It'll definitely <laughs> you definitely won't contribute to your uh, your environmental footprint. But uh, yes, you can do it. So I think uh, you know the the the, the long term goal really for South Africa is that if we're moving to you know forty percent coal um, sort of in the mix, is that 
what ESCOM really requires is to have the dispatchable energy. So typically uh, LNG does that to balance where all the mix of renewables, you know, be it from wind and its intermittency and, and solar and its intermittency, simply because battery storage isn't absolutely everything you need in the, to, to, to sort of replace um, baseload. Yeah, the, it's hard to say, um, and I don't really have the knowledge or the expertise in that in, in, in that sort of, in the long-term mix of what it would look like. Countries are phasing out coal, they're replacing it with a renewable. Germany is a, a, phasing out nuclear, replacing it with renewables. If you have a broad enough spread of technologies and you have it deep enough, then, then you start to get to a point where you start to mimic. But you need a very intelligent grid. You need an intelligent network, smart grids. Um, and smart grid, again, is a concept. It gets broken down into the various components that make up the grid, the transmission infrastructure, the substations, the high voltage lines, the, 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 the ability to manage and, and the spinning reserve to bring that up, those gas turbines that you've spoken about that, that, that's sitting there that could, could carry the, could carry the network. But we do have enough natural resources, wind, sun, <clears throat> unfortunately not so, so, so bountiful in hydro, but we do have that to be able to balance that mix up. I think Eskom's approach of saying coal will always be a component also speaks to the just transition of energy because we have plentiful and cheap coal, but it's very difficult to make clean coal power generation. There's talk of that and there's practical examples of clean coal uh, power stations. Japan led with four of those or five of those recently, but the cost is high and the maintenance of that may be very high. And, and, and again, it's not my area of expertise. I don't know enough about that to really say that that is a, is a right mix. But I do think we can bring in more renewables into our mix, uh, be more aggressive with bringing it in, but we would have to upgrade or improve our transmission and distribution infrastructure, making that more intelligent so that we could, uh, that we could balance, the, uh, balance those components out. For that, batteries is important. Any form of spinning reserve, or it's called spinning reserve for storage is important so that you can manage both the voltage as well as the frequency. And if you don't have that, it's like having a shock absorber on your car. It doesn't help to put a massive engine in and you've got no, uh, you've got no ways of putting that power onto the road. You need tires, you need the rubber on the road, and you need the suspension to keep the rubber on the road. So you need a grid that is, that is pliable, that is flexible, that can take all of these different pieces, bring it together. Again, the regulation plays a role in doing that. Uh, and that's why we've seen some of the early stage uh, sort of regulatory frameworks around if you want to put uh, uh, down a uh, solar on your roof, you need to pay a capacity charge to be able to connect, which seems counterproductive. Like I'm making power, why must I pay for the right to be connected to the grid? But the grid has to, the, the, the utility will say, well, I need to have the right or the ability to provide you with power if the sun if the cloud goes in front of the sun, and then how do I know where those things? Thank you. It seems, uh, you know, we've got those tech gremlins that keep on coming in and going out, but we got uh, the point you were making about yeah. the smart grids. Um, and I think just to sort of tie it up to, to, to get towards the, the end of our discussion is about the financing of this, right? So in my mind, um, you know, you're not going to finance a, 
uh, you know, 70 megawatt plant in the same way you finance a one megawatt um, sort of um, technology. Um, we've, we've seen a lot of the renewables being concentrated within banks. It's, is there an opportunity now because of um, the opportunity for corporates that you kind of democratize how this is funded? And what is mainly the, you know, the big question a lot of corporates would have is, is there appetite to finance these things off balance sheet or on balance sheet? I don't think so. I think that um, one of the things we do have is access to capital uh, for the smaller projects in South Africa. It is opening up the market for various funders, uh, may not be in the formal sort of, as you say, the banking sector. Um, we already see that in the big projects, there's a blend of funders. There's the banks, there's DFIs, there's pension funds, there's uh, developers who own and operate their own global assets of so foreign investors that invest in, in those they do have the, the sovereign guarantee, the offtake by, by the utility, which again brings that risk down and, and, and allows you to price that where with corporates you won't have that. But I think just because or because of that, there's more funders who can enter this market now, shorter duration. As I said earlier, uh, funding terms will be, will probably be five to eight years. Uh, Corporations can leverage their own balance sheets. Those that do have the balance sheet, this could be a very attractive thing for them to do to fund their own generation capacity because uh, what they make on the funding cost versus what they pay for electricity, if the electricity price is going up, CPI plus 10% or CPI plus 5%, whatever the the current sort of forecast that energy cost increases are and their their, uh, – the funds that they've got can be deployed to manage that cost impact. Then yes, it would be it does open up the market to other funders. And I think we've seen that even in the last six weeks, we've seen more and more interest in what what would be required and where do we price it? What is the rate at which we would fund these projects? Um, is it corporate offtake risk? Is it diversified over multiples? But yeah, that we don't have a shortage of funding. In my opinion, we don't have a shortage of funding. We have a shortage of clarity, regulatory clarity, and then we would need the we would need the the, the right solutions to fit what the demand is, the client's demand. And then yes, we can fund it. It is fundable. And uh, I mean, you've had experience of taking some of the, the first round um, uh, renewable projects and uh, refinancing those. Um, do you see more of that happening, that uh, more of that will be released and that actually makes sense for developers to get uh, more diverse sources of funding and structures? Yeah, for sure. I mean, the, the secondary market is more sophisticated. As the market gets more sophisticated, there's more suppliers, there, or there's, more, there's more projects. The secondary market where we play in becomes more attractive. And, and, and I think that's great. It shows a maturity in the market. Uh, projects that have reached COD and have been operating is the risk. So there's more certainty about the cash flows. There's more certainty about the offtake or not, not that Eskom is, that there's a risk in, in, in Eskom not wanting the power because these agreements are structured in a take or pay or make and pay type structure. But for sure, the market is more sophisticated and there are more entrants um, coming into the market, more projects that can be financed. The real importance, uh, the important here is, importance here is, is that 
this market is only going to get bigger, more attractive, more aggressive, more competition, more, 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 more. Why? Because we are still in a deficit. There's still more demand than what we've got generation in the, in the system. So I think it's an exciting space for all the players in the ecosystem, from early stage developers right through to the, to the refinanciers and the pension funds and the long-term uh, uh, investors that are that are in the space, we just we just hang for clarity, man. We just need that clarity so that we know what the rules yeah. of the road is. Yeah, and I think uh, in terms of the legals, what is the standard that is used, particularly for embedded generation rounds, like for EPCs? Um, is is that an aspect that still needs development, or is, are we already up the curve on that? No, this. I mean. Uh, uh, contracting the contracting frameworks are well developed globally as well as in South Africa, and we have depth there into how do we contract EPC agreements, O&M agreements, uh, the services that go with it, the, the the guarantees, the insurance products, the the, the risk mitigation products. Um, I mean, in the last two weeks we saw uh, civil unrest, uh, but there are products. Uh, there's uh, mega insurance, uh, political risk insurance. There's there's various ways of looking at mitigating that. Uh, technical standards, as in uh, South Africa Bureau of Standards uh, and Sound Standards, we we have we are quite sophisticated in 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 what those standards are. There are some blueprint standards around microgrids and things like that, which which have become more sort of ISO or uh, IEEE standards and. Uh, creating a, a technical baseline of what a system must do. More important is going to be what are the interfaces between the developer, the generator, and the utility. What do those interfaces look like? How are they defined? We're all part of the static power pool, so we're transmitting power between countries. Uh, so we're also going to have to look at the higher level, sort of more high-voltage side of the networks, how they are integrated and how do they match up with each other. But um, technically, I don't think we have – there's no – it's not that we're working in a sort of Wild West cowboy scenario where, you know, he's going to go put stuff together and not have a – not have a technical – not have – not have – we've got very good consulting engineers. Uh, they've got deep knowledge uh, around energy systems. Companies like Mines have been generating and producing their own power for years. So – I'm not, I'm not concerned about the engineering standards per se or about the legal and contractual standards. I think we're good there. Good. Uh, I suppose uh, I could just give you uh, your sort of closing remarks. Um, and then um, I think one of the things that uh, I've really come across from you is that um, there's still a lot of work to do, particularly in terms of the infrastructure that it really enables these things, particularly on, on the grid side, which means we're still dependent on uh, policy and ESCOM and the pace in which they develop these things. And secondly, is that, uh, you know, the, the, all the sort of technical and financial infrastructure around it is, is, is ready and waiting and ready to go. But is there really a rush? Uh, from from for for companies to actually do this, and it's, that's going to be dependent on cost or what your sort of value extraction sure. is going to be. Yeah, so, uh, and conscious of time, I think we've got a few minutes left. But the, yeah, the the rush or the the speed with which corporations will move into this will first depend like the certainty, which we've spoken a lot about. Like, am I going to do this? 
will it be legal and correct? Certainly, but those that have energy security as the main driver will probably step into the breach first. So they will step into the into the projects first, uh, followed by cost, and then sort of like stacking the value on top of that. If I you have an asset not being utilized, I mean agriculture or mining or real estate, and I've got roof space. You know, where do I go to from here? I've, I've made my own power, so I'm no longer that dependent on Eskom or dependent on the utility. I'm doing it at a cheaper price than what the increases are going to be. And then you sort of get into that value, value stacking. And it gets thinner and thinner and thinner as you go to the top. At the same time, we have developers that have, that have been waiting for this opportunity to present their wares, their solution to potential clients, and we've seen an uptick in, in those, which is great, develops the market. Uh, closing closing remark from my side is, is that maybe just this is that we are still very much under, our demand still outstrips our supply. And whilst that imbalance is there, the generation piece is going to be attracted to much more power because we need more power. Rather than to make bulk power, can we consume what we've got more efficient? And then to your opening statement around the environmental impact of how we generate power, renewable energy, reduction of carbon, and what can we do in terms of what our total impact on the on the environment is, is probably something we didn't discuss today, but is a very big driver and it's no use going to roll out hundreds of heavy fuel diesel generators or open cycle gas turbines or polluting the environment only to generate the baseload power or the power that you need because ultimately you will have to get rid of them again and you would have to go to something that is environmentally friendlier and, and, and more more where we want to be in terms of the ecological impact of uh, the solutions. But we still haven't got enough. We need more to generate more, which is why the risk mitigation around is there. You know, you need you need to generate more power because the demand is too high. Yeah, and uh, with that note, thank you very much, Laurentius. And also thank you, uh, our guests, for, for, for staying on and putting up with our technological gremlins uh, here and there. Um, but this is a conversation that obviously continues uh, uh, to be topical and needs to be discussed in, in many its many facets. Uh, but do what you did is really just give us a, a quick overview of how the specific area and opportunity is going to develop alongside the standard REAP procurement, which is basically uh, you know renewables and ESCOM. And now there's a, a new factor that comes in to develop. Um, the, the the energy sector in its entirety and uh, with that uh, everybody be safe out there have a good afternoon